0: Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live i'm jeff simon we have a fantastic show for you this evening congressman sam graves is with us and uh, we have a slightly abbreviated show this evening because the congressman's time is uh, very limited as he has a lot of activity going on which we will actually be talking about on air so a slightly shortened show before we get started just a couple quick notes first of all things are moving so fast on socialflight.com and the free social flight apps for Apple and Android devices. Be sure to check them out. We reach over 200,000 pilots. And if you just get the app, our Fly to Win Challenge right now, you just need to check in, you get points, and we are giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. So uh, that is very, very cool. Be sure to check that out. Um, Another uh, thing just to tell you, we are in in December here, having our uh, promotion uh, where we are um, Uh, promoting to support social flight with this uh, very cool Mustang globe that you can actually see here. Um, it's a 3D Mustang in the globe, and all you need to do uh, if you're interested in supporting Social Flight and getting one of these globes is send an email to info, I-N-F-O, just info, at socialflight.com. Uh, they are uh, 99 99 so just, just about $100, and uh, that includes shipping, and it just helps you support us, keep everything going with Social Flight, and get a really, really cool gift for uh, the holidays. Um, tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Massimo Mighty Sat. The Massimo Mighty Sat is a pulse oximeter that uh, I'll tell you, I've flown with many different ones, but for the past years now, I have been flying with the Massimo Mighty Sat, and uh, it's absolutely fantastic. This is an image of that. I I would not imagine flying without it at this point. I used to think that you had to go to very high altitudes before it mattered what your uh, uh, oxygen levels were going to be. But I have now discovered using this device and the app that goes along with it that uh, it's amazing how it affects you at night or other altitudes. So by monitoring it can make a big difference. Be sure to check that out as well now uh congressman sam graves represents missouri's sixth district and is the ranking member of the transportation and infrastructure committee in the united states house of representatives this critical committee has jurisdiction over all modes of transportation including the nation's aviation system and the upcoming faa reauthorization bill sam's a pilot and a lifelong general aviation enthusiast with over four thousand five hundred hours of flight time. He, he holds an ATP, is type rated in the TBM Avenger and all models of the P-40 Warhawk, the P-51 Mustang, and the F-4U Corsair. He is one of general aviation's strongest advocates and one of the, um, one of the most important aviation-related roles in Washington. So I'm absolutely grateful that he exists and serves us and supports all of us I'm going to bring him on the line now, and please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Congressman Sam Graves.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. That's quite an introduction.
0: (laughs) You are very well deserving of it. I'll tell you, I really am sincere when I say that I am grateful that we have someone like you that really gets it and understands the challenges of general aviation serving on such an important committee in Congress.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It, it, you know, it, the, the hard part about representing aviation or, or doing any aviation legislation or anything like that in Congress is so many people, they just don't understand, um, you know, the complexity of it. They don't understand the airspace. They don't understand certification issues. They don't understand pilot issues. You know, it's just very foreign to them because their only experience with it is, you know, commercial aviation. So it, it's it, it's challenging.
0: I can, I can imagine, and, and, I, and I think you know, there are a couple sides of it. You know, one side is that in the commercial space, as, as you said, everyone needs it to such a degree. They use it. It's so critical to everything that they do, and they don't understand the concepts of the pilot shortages and, and mechanic shortage and everything that we need in infrastructure to make it all work. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it seems general aviation is virtually invisible to the average person. A lot of people don't even know that it's in their hometown, that they, they've never even visited their local airport. And I love the quote that, that has been said before of, of you know, the runway is the main street yeah. of, of, you know, many towns in some ways.
1: It is. And, and uh, you know, you've heard the old saying too, you build a mile of highway and you can go a mile, but you build a mile of runway, you can go anywhere in the world. So, it's general aviation is as you know it's, it's forgotten in many cases unless you really uh, understand it or use it or or uh, uh, participate, um, and that's one of the reasons why in the new FA reauthorization, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the first the first time this has ever happened. We're gonna do a title specifically um, geared towards general aviation. So all of our uh, GA uh, components and proposals are gonna be in that in that title itself.
0: So tell me a little bit about the FAA reauthorization bill, because this process is kind of realigns in many, in many ways the way that the FAA operates. And there have been a lot of transitions in the past with things that have been very beneficial, like basic med, uh, other things like that, things that streamline certification. And it seems like we, we need to keep this momentum going to have the FAA supporting general aviation and all of aviation, but certainly general aviation instead of kind of being in the way of it.
1: And and that's absolutely correct. We do this process every uh, four to five years, depending on what the reauthorization is. And it basically um, it reestablishes or or reauthorizes the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. And then you do all of the legislation that that uh, has anything to do with aviation. You do it in FAA reauthorization. Um, mm-hmm. You know everything from AIP funding to um little things like like what we just saw which came out of the last faa reauthorization the change in registration from um from three years to to seven years so Mm -hmm. those are the little things everything even the big things go go in there and and uh, it just reestablishes the process it provides their funding and and everything that goes with it so it's a very big bill in terms of uh of aviation whether that's everything from commercial all the way down to um, you know, to the smallest, um, you know, whether that's you know ultralights or or uh, uh, drones for that matter.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think, fr- from your perspective, when you look at, at reauthorization and this opportunity to kind of realign the the FAA for the next period of time? Uh, what are the, the top things that kind of come to your mind that you'd like to see uh, get changed or or, or help uh, the uh, the FAA kind of move forward?
1: There's, believe it or not, there's a lot of things out there. One, we have to make sure that the FAA is a little bit more timely when it comes to getting things done that is required of them in this legislation. They're still working on stuff that, that we required them to do in the last FAA reauthorization. So, you know, that's one area. Um, we have a variety of other things. In fact, I've told stakeholders and my friends out there, you know, give me your list. You know, what are the things that you would like to see uh, in, uh, you know, when it comes to aviation, things we would like to change when it comes to aviation. We also need to make sure that the FAA understands aviation. We have some folks in the FAA that, that literally do not understand aviation. It's kind of like what you see in Congress. And so we want to make sure that, that they do understand this, that this is a, 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 you know, a very complex field and, and, and you don't have to just be an enforcement agency. Right. You know, when they took advocacy out of the mission statement of the FAA, that's when we, we started sliding downhill. And, you know, we, it became a very much an enforcement agency Well, we need advocacy in there as well. So we've got a lot of things out there going on. We obviously um, have to, you know, figure out how we move those dollars that are funded through the Aviation Trust Fund. That's through the, the fuel taxes that we pay every time you buy um, Jet A or 100 Low Lead. Um, you pay aviation field tax and that all goes into that fund. And that's what helps funds uh, a lot of these projects that are out there.
0: You know, that makes a lot of sense. And you bring up the concept of, you know, advocacy versus enforcement. And that's obviously been something that, that's on a lot of people's minds when it comes to the FAA. And, it, and I think there's some question with a lot of people about to what degree it's getting better, how that gets kind of turned around. There was a time when it was the, the, going to be the, the friendlier, gentler FAA. Um, but it almost feels like with issues such as what happened with the, the 737 Max and things so that that kind of uh, made the FAA a lot more cautious about their own decisions, that it's, it's very easy for an organization like that, an entity like that, to uh, react to just being hesitant and not very motivated to take risks and to uh, certify things or move things very forward and focus more on, adv- uh, on the enforcement side, which has a lot of technology behind it with ADS-B, et cetera. So how, how do we change that culture? Well, that's a great, um, you, you bring up a great point because um, we do
1: have a situation where it, it takes an extraordinary amount of time for somebody to make a decision in many cases over the FAA because they are, they're afraid, of, you know, the consequences, if they are the one that made that decision or signed off on on this or that, or whatever the case may be, they may be held accountable in in a in a lawsuit and in, in a litigious society that we have, um, you know, that can be, you know, that can be a problem. And so in the FAA, they're very careful. That's the reason a lot of this stuff moves so slowly uh, when it comes to moving forward. And we have, the, the sad thing is we got the safest airspace in the world the faa is the gold standard of safety worldwide and we need to maintain that but at the same time we need to have some latitude when it comes to uh uh when it comes to ideas thoughts you know just whatever the case may be that you know it's it, it, there's just so many things out there that take too long and we need to make sure that 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 uh, uh speeds up considerably
0: yeah, it seems to be somewhat related to you know what the motivation is, or what the whether whether essentially uh, members of the of the FA people who work for the FA are actually you know rewarded and motivated for getting th- certain things done or or certifying certain things and pushing them through. We had Corky Fornoff on uh, the prior week uh, where we've uh, talked about he he was absolutely just raving about the the good old days of when he worked with some amazing faa people to establish guidelines and processes that made it possible for air shows to continue and for hollywood to do some of the things that they do and and he was lauding these individuals for getting these things done and um i think it's kind of hard to find some of that these days because as you mentioned the word gold it's a little bit like the gold watch thing if, if you don't do anything you still get the gold watch at the end <laughs> yeah, and and that's
1: and that's the thing again there's there's folks in aviation that just and and a lot of our institutional knowledge within the FAA is leaving as we retire some of these folks have been around a long time so we need to focus on that and start paying attention to that and make sure that that uh that the faa is is accountable Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and part of this enforcement's come about as a result of ADSB as well. You know, ADSB was never intended to be used as an enforcement tool, but but it's 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 starting to sift out in there, and we're hearing more and more uh you know, th- these enforcement actions as a result of ADSB tracks. So we just need to bring you know, it and this happens. This is a realignment. We we kind of bring the FAA back in under um you know that we rein them back in a little bit, and uh, and that happens every four to five years.
0: Well, I, I you have your work cut out for you, but I definitely applaud you for for working on that, and and especially when it does come to the ADSB thing. You know, we, we have a pretty wide reach here at Social We hear a lot from pilots, and I will say that the concept of ADSB for enforcement, when it was initially promised, that wasn't going to be a focus, is a is a big big concern. Of course, of of so it comes up constantly. And we did actually, we have had FA folks uh, on that have said that, you know, the, we have a system now uh, that alerts us with computer that alerts us with every violation. So we, we know every violation. The question is, what do we do with that information?
1: Yeah, and, and that's, you, you know, and a lot of it comes down to priorities and, and how priorities are. So just to give you an example, this is, this is me. Um, I lost my billfold in August of this year, and so obviously my pilot's license is gone. So I got a temporary certificate issued to me, but I still have yet to receive. This is August, and now we're in December, and I have yet to receive a copy of my pilot license. You know, my plastic card to do it, but yet, if 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 I were to fly, you know, if if my end number came up and my registration is just the least bit um, lax or, you know, something comes up on an ADS B track there, you know, right there. And, mm. uh, you know, they're quick to, uh, you know, to, to, find that. And they'll tell you, well, they don't have enough manpower. They have enough manpower to do the enforcement. They just se- don't seem to have enough manpower to take care of the, the, uh, uh, the customer. Um, yeah. and, and that's very frustrating to me. And, and so it's, 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 you know, you know, it's first, it's first person. Um, with myself um, understanding this. And so I've had to have uh, multiple temporary certificates assigned to me because I can't get my darn card, um, (laughs) you know, printed, you know, that I can keep in my billfold.
0: Well, well, you know, ultimately, I am very much an optimist about it. And I, I, I hope that what we can do is we can learn from the successes of the advancements that we've had. I mean, basic med we haven't seen planes fall out of the sky and pilots keel over all over the place. It's been a wonderful success, at least in most people's opinion. Um, the The certificate the changes to, to be able to have so many new devices and, and uh, uh, avionics come and and so many different ways of getting products to market with less uh, overhead, again, I think has increased safety. It hasn't hasn't decreased. So if we look at all these things, they all add up to, it seems, progress and loosening of certain restrictions hasn't come back to bite anybody, so it should no. encourage more of it.
1: That's right, and, and you bring up basic med. That's a perfect example of something that we want to expand in FAA reauthorization. Um, I want to expand it from 6,000 pounds up to 12,000 pounds. That's a threshold for having to get a type rating, obviously, um, you know, and, and do a few things with that. We've shown that basic med can work. Mm-hmm. Um very well and this the fact that we have limiting factors and i was there when we negotiated that and i know the the argument and the uh advocacy and everything that went into setting the in fact i set most of those those parameters because they were looking for benchmarks that were looking for um, points to uh um, you know to to do this and and so i set a lot of set a lot of those just simply because i understood process and, and the lingo and and you know the aircraft that were out there and so i'm looking to expand that um for uh you know basic med for a lot of pilots out there and
0: and we've proven this works
1: you know it's yeah. very-
0: do you see an opportunity also to push above the eighteen thousand foot limit with that uh to make it possible for folks with smaller aircraft that have turbochargers things like that to, to <laughs> that be, it doesn't seem like there's high risk there
1: there's not. There shouldn't be. Um, that may be a threshold. That, and again, it goes back to you got to make sure that the people that are negotiating this understand what you're trying to do. And right. when you go above 18,000 feet, of course, into class A um, airspace, um, it, all it takes is somebody to plant that seed about, you know, this danger or that danger, whatever the case may be. And so we got it. The first process in this whole thing is for me to start educating uh, the folks on both the Senate side and the House side, why we need to do this, why this is, will be fine, um, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And and so it's education. And 18,000 feet, for some reason, seems to be a barrier that, that, that uh, uh, some folks have a little bit of heartburn with.
0: Yeah, and it's such a strange barrier when you think about it because you don't want to be flying at 17,000 feet without oxygen either. And, and, and then at the same time, uh, there's plenty of basic med IFR pilots flying in the system fine, and I can't imagine anything different between the basic med exam and going for a class three medical that somehow checks the difference between how you're going to tolerate oxygen. <laughs>
1: That's right. It, yeah, it, it, it makes no sense. And, and to be quite honest with you, it can be safer because um, if you can get just above that weather in many cases, it makes all the difference in, in the world. It makes for a safer, safer flight. And, and as you pointed out, obviously, you have to have oxygen above what? What's that? I think 14 or 14.5. 14, uh, you know, you got to have oxygen anyway. So
0: yeah so it's well it's it's interesting but i i'm like again i just go back to them. i'm I'm grateful we have someone that understands it (laughs) advocating on our behalf um let's let's switch subjects for a minute because uh when we talk about uh your committee and what you work on infrastructure obviously is the big part of that and how that matters for aviation uh i recently was down at nbaa the uh it it reminded me with all the urban air mobility of the kind of the, the big days of the you know light jets, <laughs> when it was all about the VLJs, and it the, if you go there and you drink the Kool Aid and see what all these companies say is going to happen, some of these are big Fortune 100 or Fortune 50 companies, um, then you would be led to believe that it's all going to look like Blade Runner and we're going to have you know air, you know ur- urban Uber landing on tops of buildings all over the place. We know as pilots. There's a, there are many other parts of the problem if all of a sudden everyone can land on top of buildings everywhere. What do you see happening in infrastructure to shake this out, to make any of this possible? Well, to,
1: to get very technical, we're obviously going to have to do some altitude separation. We're going to have to figure that out. Um, we're going to have to figure out, um, you know, the eyes in the sky um, and air, air mobility. A lot of the proposals out there right now do have pilot in there but eventually they're going to go a lot of that stuff wants to go pilotless so we got to have we got to figure out the eyes in the sky component of it but the biggest thing is is we we, get, we need to be thinking outside the box the problem with congress is we're a very reactionary body you know we react to problems or we react to things rather than being proactive and trying to figure out what the uh with the next um you know the next technology or the next step whatever whatever that may be and and that's very tough to do uh, in congress particularly if there is a problem or something happens then it becomes extraordinarily reactionary and data goes right out the door um, then it becomes emotionally driven and that's the the 737 max is a perfect example of that the data was thrown completely out the door, and it became nothing more than an emotional argument. And the fact that we crippled, um, we crippled an entire line of aircraft um, in the United States based on two accidents in two third world countries um, with very questionable pilot um, requirements is, is just wrong. But that's what happens. When you have a reactionary body and and emotion takes over, so we need to be thinking outside the box and looking ahead and and because aviation is changing and as you pointed out, it's changing rapidly. Um, this thing's coming faster than than we realize and and obviously we're going to share airspace with with a lot of these uh, with a lot of these aircraft and so we're going to be we're going to be looking at altitude separation. We're going to be looking at. Um, uh, obviously, situational awareness and how we're going to be able to, to accomplish that. Um, just a lot of things that, that have to do with it. And, and hopefully, we'll see uh, much of that in, in uh, this reauthorization.
0: Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I, to some degree, when I look at it, you can almost take the technology out and, and say, forget about the electric, forget about even unmanned, forget about all these things. What if all of a sudden, the technology we've had for a very long time, like helicopters, uh, just stop being cost prohibitive and became incredibly inexpensive. What if all of a sudden you could get a $25,000 helicopter everywhere uh, that you would have the same problem where if everyone has access all of a sudden, where are they all going to go? How are we going to fit them and support them? all?
1: <laughs> no matter what though, you know what, even with all that technology, it still comes back to one thing. And it doesn't matter if the person flying the aircraft is on the ground or in the aircraft itself. If there's a problem, you still have to fly the airplane, fly the airplane or the aircraft, the helicopter, fly yeah. the airplane. And, you know, that's that's something that we can't lose sight of. You have to have a competent pilot, you know, in case there is an emergency. And again, that may be somebody on the ground or it may be, you know, somebody in the air. And and because if the technology fails, then, then uh, you know, there's got to be a backup and the pilot's yeah. a backup
0: how uh as, as, as with some of the work that you are doing in Washington um obviously you mentioned pilots, so we clearly are are, are still facing pilot shortage mechanic shortage, all this. What do you think can be done uh, legislatively to tr- in the future to try to help that
1: legislatively that's that's a real tough um that's a tough nut to crack you've got we got a couple proposals out there but unfortunately they're just band-aid proposals one is to increase the retirement age for uh commercial pilots another one is to um you know change the uh at least for commercial pilots and that's where it really hits um is with the airlines to you know one of the things to change the uh uh, the training and what hours um you know simulator hours versus real-time hours and and we have this 1500 hour rule, which is uh, has a lot to do with emotion. Again, it goes back to emotion in mm-hmm. the Buffalo um, crash, which, interestingly enough, the 1500 hour rule would not have covered either one of the pilots uh, in that in that crash. But we get into a situation now where you see a lot of pilots that are trying to gain their 1500 hours, and they're just running a Cessna 152 and they're going out and doing circles in this. <laughs> I would much rather have a pilot sitting in the right seat. With a competent captain in the left seat learning instead of just boring holes in the sky with a a uh, you know a, with a cessna it's so i think we need to change um you know our training or at least change the uh uh you know what hours or how hours are counted or even military hours how those are counted um that's something that that is important but again it comes back to this emotional argument uh that's out there rather than the data um that uh that backs it up um we also have some workforce issues um you know that we're working on trying to help students whether that's mechanics um technicians pilots uh whatever the case may be getting them into those schools getting the interest there it's just expensive and we all know that it's extraordinarily expensive to go through school to to become a professional uh, in the
0: aviation industry do you think that there's also an opportunity uh, with the designees, that there's an opportunity with designated examiners, with designated for both the mechanic side and also the pilot side? Because, you know, certainly my experience is that there is an enormous shortage there and the FAA is not very anxious to add more in some cases. And we need to much-
1: expand that. Yeah, you're exactly right, that needs to be expanded and that's very frustrating because um, it does take forever in many cases to uh, to get an examiner, and and we need to expand the process and 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 that program uh, in particular. That's something we're looking at as well.
0: Yeah, because my understanding, for at least what I've faced, and you can certainly correct me, but um, in most of these areas, whether it be an aviation medical examiner, a designated pilot examiner, or a mechanic examiner, um, in all those cases, the idea of can you become one if you're qualified. It, you, you hit a brick wall because it's up to the, your local FAA to say, do we have enough or do we want ha- or do we not have enough? And when I've spoken with some FAA folks at FISDOS and other places, they've said, it's really not about whether we have enough. It's whether or not we want to manage more of them.
1: Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. And that's another one of those cultural issues we're going to have to, we need to change. And it's going to have to happen. Um, it's going to have to happen. Um, from outside in terms of requiring it, but it's going to have to, you know, happen organically from the inside as well.
0: Yep. So um, now you did come in with some, some pretty good news. uh, uh, And that is uh, you're obviously not just uh, on the committee, but of course serving in Congress and uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, you believe has some progress. So can, can you give us some late breaking news here? Yeah, we've just we've been
1: negotiating uh, all day and and into the night, and I think we've got a, uh, uh, I think we've got a compromise, and so we should be able to uh, to get that done tomorrow. Um, it, it's still a long ways away from now and five o'clock tomorrow when it's scheduled to come to the floor of the of the House. But regardless, um, fingers crossed. You know that's one of the most important things that we do. That's another authorization that we do, is the defense reauthorization, and we do it um you know we do it every congress and so it's it's one of the most important in fact in the constitution that's one of the number one things we're charged with mm-hmm. national defense and so um you know we need to do this we get into some very political arguments right now a lot of the argument has to do with with vaccinations and forced vaccinations and some of our military personnel that were um, that were released as a result of not getting a vaccination, letting them back in, dropping those requirements. So that's become a political um, hot potato that's gone back and forth. I think we have a compromise on that. And, and so fingers crossed, we're going to have uh, NDA done uh, tomorrow. So,
0: Would that also weigh in on, obviously, with so many things going on with the war in Ukraine and other things, it seems like there is a, an, an awakening in the country to the need of, uh, to kind of how do we restart this industry? How do we get our defense industry going in a way that um could support us if if needed directly instead of indirectly as as we are in Ukraine. Is is that affected by this as well?
1: It is. Everything that has to do with defense is and, and you bring up an excellent point. Um, and in fact I, I represent the Lake City Arsenal. Lake City Arsenal in Independence, Missouri, does all of the small arms ammunition Uh, for the military, all branches of the military. So that's um, 5.56, 7.62, the fifty caliber, 9mm, everything is done uh, there. And so there's been this pushback because what it is, it's a government-owned facility, but they bring in private contractors. So Remington has had it, um, ATK, which is Federal Ammunition, has had it. And right now the contract goes to Olin, which is a Winchester company, Actually, Winchester is an Olin company, but Olin um, uh, Ammunition, and they have it right now. And the administration has been pushing to not allow them to sell uh, excess ammunition to the to the to the private sector. Over the years, we've always produced more ammunition than we need in a year's time. We build up our reserves, and then we are allowed we allow these contractors to then be able to any excess it ammunition they can sell to the private sector what that means is is if we ever go to war and all of a sudden we need to to ramp up quickly we can pull that ammunition back and we still have the workforce in place to to continue to produce it we don't have you know you can't ammunition is an extraordinarily um uh specialized field you can't just go out and hire temps to come in and start making making ammunition so as long as they're overproducing. If we get into a, a military situation, we have the ammunition that we need. Well, the administration wanted to back that off, yeah. and it would have meant 400 employees being laid off. And, and again, that's not something ammunition is not something you can just turn on and turn off. Right. Um, you have to have the the uh, you know the uh, uh, the capacity there to be able to to deal with these things. And that's something that we've been dealing with in NDA. And it's a political argument. It goes back and forth. Um, And so it, it's. I think we've got that solved, but it's one thing after the other. There's there's yeah. a thousand of those little Lake City issues out there that that happened in in uh, the defense reauthorization.
0: That makes sense, and it seems like if there's a lesson, I would hope to be learned from uh, the the pandemic and supply chain issues, uh, uh, Ukraine, and what we've seen in this whole area is that cap- the capacity, the ability, looking. Forward and and seeing that we need the ability for capacity, whether it be on you know shipping and transportation or manufacturing or defense capabilities, um, you can't just all of a sudden make it when right. when you're in a crisis. I mean, even from even from Russia's side, they're seeing that you 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 run out.
1: That's right. That's absolutely correct. We so, you know, always had a mechanism for that. We just don't need to turn that mechanism down.
0: Mm-hmm. and what is the biggest difference now compared to the ability that we've had like during world war ii et cetera, to ramp up things because i think that's what's stuck in people's heads is you can always just change things you can always just ramp stuff up whether again that's that's you know shipping or manufacturing or transportation um what do you think's changed that that makes it more important that we plan ahead this time
1: because it takes forever to get a concept to uh uh, to fruition. So, a great example, aviation example. The P-51 Mustang went from napkin drawing to first prototype in six months. You know, and the, one of the greatest fighters that's ever been been developed. You know, it had the range, it had the agility, it had the ability, um, and it helped win the war. If you tried to do that today, um, it, it's just impossible. Um, just the procurement process. Then you got to go through these studies. You've got to go through everything that goes along with it. That's outside of the engineering. That's already been done by whatever company is proposing. Mm. It, it's the government procurement process that takes forever to change. Um, if you've got something already in the works, that's one thing. But if you're trying something new, um, it's uh, it, it just takes forever, and that's the biggest problem uh, that we have today is, is, you know, just adjusting and, and, uh, uh, you know, and adapting, you know, to whatever circumstances are out there.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Well, again, I'm, I'm grateful that you're working on this. You definitely have your work cut out for you. And I know you're up against a hard stop. I could, I could certainly do my best to drag it out, but I'm going to be respectful. (laughs) Yeah. of the fact that you're up against a hard stop there. So I, I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, for what you're doing and, of course, for coming on the show this evening and giving us some insight into the process and especially as to what you're doing to, uh, to get the uh, Defense Reauthorization Act uh, uh, reestablished.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for letting me be on. Absolutely. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Right. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, Even though this was an abbreviated show, I think that it was really, really interesting to be able to hear from Congressman Sam Graves on some of these very, very important issues. It really is incredibly helpful. And uh, so with that, again, I've gotten some notes. I can see things coming in here. I want to remind everyone that, uh, again, if you are interested, we talked about the P-51 Mustang, which is uh, a very... um, timely uh, and so if you're interested in the p51 mustang all you need to do here is uh, send an email info at socialflight.com we'll send you all the information for that thanks again to our uh, sponsor for this week's show of massimo mighty sat And, um, again, uh, be sure to check them out. You can just look at it at Mossimo.com. They are a medical quality device. It is like nothing that you could ever buy just on eBay or anything like that. This is it. I fly with it. I recommend it highly. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely fantastic. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.